I was halfway down Christopher Street going toward the Hudson River, and someone came running down the block. Hey, come on, let's go to Sheridan Square. The drag queens are fighting the cops. I really wasn't even thinking about getting arrested. I was just sick and tired of being told, no, I can't be mean. There was not a lot of room to move around. Folks were jammed in the, in the square and folks were animated. And I was animated with them. And when I saw how enraged people were, I was enraged with them. You're listening to the Upper Cape Catch by the Enterprise, where we bring you audio stories from Falmouth, Mashpee, Bourne, and Sandwich. I'm Gilda Geist, and if you haven't guessed it already, this week we're talking about Stonewall. On the night of June 27, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in New York City. Gay bars at the time faced this type of police violence regularly, but this time was different. Tired of constantly being under attack, gay and trans people didn't run from the police that night. They fought back. This event became known as a major turning point in the gay liberation movement. Dozens of gay and trans folks stood up for their rights that night, and two of them live right here in Falmouth. I'm Charles D. Evans, and I'm 74 years old. And I'm Paul Glass, and I'm 73 years old. Charles grew up in a small town in North Carolina, and Paul grew up in Dorchester in Boston. The two have been married since 2012 and live in a beautiful house together on the Acapesca Peninsula. They were kind enough to let me come to their house and ask them all kinds of questions about what it was actually like to be at Stonewall. Can you guys sort of like set the scene for me in terms of what life was like for you guys in 1969 and, you know, how you found yourselves in, in New York? I had just came to New York. I was uh, between my freshman year and my sophomore year in college. This is Charles, by the way. My parents always lived in New York, but I lived with my aunt in North Carolina. Uh, so I was up for the summer. The month before, there was a huge riot at my school uh, where one of my classmates had gotten killed by the National Guard. So I was kind of in a riot mode. Uh, came to New York, regular summer uh, afternoon, hanging out in the village, went to a bar called the Bonsoir. Bonsoir let out after midnight. And as usual, we normally go down Sheraton Square and just hang out. And this particular night, hanging out, going down, we saw a big riot, a lot of police wondering what was going on. I kind of understood why they was having a riot because back in that time, it was really illegal to have the gay bar, two guys dancing or whatever. And even at the uh, Bonsoir, where I used to normally attend, it was constantly raided. Um, as soon as we knew that the police were coming, the music was cut off. We had jukebox at that time. And music was cut off. You had to get away from the bar. There was no dance or whatever. So that particular night, I guess all the anger from the riot I had the month before and just getting sick and tired of being sick and tired of being told what you can do and what you can't do. It just built those feelings up. So when we realized what was going on there, naturally I was happy to join in and protest because it was time to say no. Um, and being a black person born and raised in the South, there was just so many times that they have said no that enough was enough. For me, I, I have been tired all of my life. Because like I said, born and raised in the South, I was raised during the time of segregation riding in the back of the bus, the colored signs, the um, can't go in the restaurants, you had to be fed outside the door, uh, 
if you see a white person, you had to step aside or cross the streets. Everything was just no, no, no. And somewhere down the line, you get tired of no's. Back then, Charles was so fed up, he wasn't even worried about being arrested. But for Paul, things were a little different. Well, I was living in Boston, still living in my mom's house. And I was, um, had already come out um, to my parents and family the, um, uh, maybe a year, a year or more before and in 68. And uh, it was uh, around my birthday that I met my now husband, Charles, um, in November. And we connected, we called ourselves kind of distant dating, but that kind of waned. And um, by the summer, when it came around, I was feeling adventurous and decided that I was going to go on my own to New York and make um, a weekend trip on my own, which was very unusual because I, I usually travel with either family or friends. Found myself in the village, poking around, exploring, finding my way, trying to find myself in the midst of um, this gay environment and finding somebody that seemed to be a brouhaha. So wait, before we get any further, let me just make sure you caught that. By June 27th, 1969, Charles and Paul had already met. It wasn't until much later they found out they were both at Stonewall that night. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Back to Paul. I was a little skittish, but I wanted to see what the commotion was all about. So I came running up towards um, Sheridan Square. And by the time I got to the square, it was a blaze of whirling lights. Cop cars were up and down the avenue. There were um, there was a huge crowd across the street in the Sheridan Square, and you know I didn't know at the time that Stonewall Bar. I had never really been on that side of Christopher Street. Well, lo and behold, there was just a huge crowd of people, and there was lots of commotion, lots of shouting. Um, you know, the cops were trying to push the crowd back, and they just weren't having it. Yeah, I remember seeing. One person in handcuffs, they were trying to put her into the back of a cruiser, and she was kicking and screaming and really putting up a fight. The, the cops who were trying to force her into the car, they backed away. And when they backed away, and um, she, I don't know how she wiggled herself out of you know, her being handcuffed, but it created such a storm at that point because it was really like, brewing to a fever pitch with all of the yelling and things. And then it really became a little more physical. Folks started throwing things. I was, um, you know, in the background um, fearing that I might get arrested or something. And all I can think about is how am I going to explain this to my mother when I <laughs> try to bail me out of jail. But we would look around and see what we can find, whether it's a trig or an empty beer can or whatever. We were just tossing stuff over, um, over the heads of the crowd. And um, it was aiming at the police. And when they realized that they were being bombarded, they started backing up. And as they backed up, the crowd advanced. They backed up more. The crowd advanced. And it got to the point where they were trying to um, literally run away from the crowd and run around the others um, around the block. And it turned out, <laughs> somebody said, they're going to come out over here. We ran the opposite way, met them halfway, <laughs> so they would never read it around the whole block. You know, it, and they were literally being chased away from the scene, and 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 they were in fear as it as it being the opposite. They would, you know, 
put the fear of God in everybody whenever they came through. Had you ever seen anything like this where instead the police were running from y'all? or Never. No, that was no, all no. brand new. That was a new experience. Never seen anything like that. I mean, you know, and I had been out in Boston and gay clubs in Boston. The same thing was happening in Boston. It wasn't just, um, you know, in New York thing. It was happening across the country in every time, you know, both coasts and everything in between. The cops felt, um, you know, that that was their, their second paycheck. You know, they would come around and raid, you know, get paid off under the table. We were a vulnerable population, and they preyed on us. I'm not sure what sparked the commotion inside of Stonewall. Lots of different stories create, um, um, have emanated from that. But my understanding is that there was um, the, the usual payoff. Somebody apparently had already come and gotten the payoff. And then there was another crew of cops who came through and thought they needed to be paid off, and they wasn't, it wasn't happening, so they started harassing the, the patrons, and the patrons started fighting back. People were so riled up that the protest continued the next day. Paul didn't go back to the protest, but Charles did. I had not come out to my parents, and it was all over the news about this riot down in Sheraton Square, and the gays and stuff was fighting, and the drag queen was fighting. And it was rather interesting because sitting with my parents, watching the news, the camera panned around and it got just the shoulder. If it went about a quarter of an inch further, it would have showed my face. And again, my parents were born and raised in the South and being born and raised in the South and from a black family, that being gay was taboo. And I, you can imagine the stuff they were saying about the participants and everything, and I'm sitting there cringing, saying, oh, God, I hope that camera really doesn't show my face. But I was still ready to go back again. And a friend called and said they were going, they want to go back to the village. Seven, eight o'clock that evening, I was back there again and doing what I had to do to protest. People from everywhere, not even all, uh, just say gay, we had allies and everything just there protesting because we had the support. Um... But I think the police felt that if they tried to do anything to harm us, it really, really got worse than it was. Um, so they kind of stood back. That second night, on June 28, 1969, the crowd of protesters was bigger than ever. What was it like to like see that huge crowd? Like, did you, how did you feel? The energy. It was like, okay, we are being seen now. We are being, being heard. Um, People know, and now it's on the national news because you see news trucks all over the place. Every major TV network, there was a uh, camera there interviewing people. So it felt really, really good. Like there was a relief. Okay, someone is now hearing us. Someone is now recognizing us. We didn't know how far it would go, but we know, knew at that particular time we are here. You know, we think of it as a turning point. Would you say you felt that it was a turning point at that time as well? Of course, yeah. Especially when you know you got national news and all the major channels there, whatever. We never really got encouraged when the cops raided the these bars. It was just a raid and it just went on by its, you know. But when you the situation has gotten this large and this much coverage, you knew you had really started something. The unity across sexualities, genders, and races that night was a big part of what made Stonewall so successful as the start of a revolution. And that type of unity was something that was sorely needed. You know, we, as black men, we have um, felt the oppression for a long time, all of our lives. 
Certainly, I, I felt it too, just in different ways. We, I didn't live in the segregated South. I didn't grow up in the segregated South. But I certainly felt, you know, uh, bias and discrimination uh, growing up in Boston and never trying to, you know, anytime we went shopping, we were always followed around the stores and, you know, not being serviced um, like everybody else. We'd have to wait for, 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 for whatever or, or kick up some dust, so to speak, in order to, um, to get somebody to pay attention for us to pay our own money like everybody else. And when I fought, thought at the time when I came out that I had finally found my tribe, um, oh, my God, I'm not the only gay person I know. There was discrimination within the gay community as well. So it just seemed it was um, a never-ending story. But that night at Stonewall, all that went away because we were all one. Everybody was involved, and everybody was fighting um, for one cause. And it, was, um, it really was something to see. It was just amazing. But amidst all the unity, there is one group that Paul singled out, and for good reason. I can tell you, we, as a LGBTQ community owe a huge debt to the transgender community and drag queens. They stood up first. They held the front line. They took the knocks for us when we were hiding in the shadows oftentimes and trying to fit in and assimilate to regular um, society. But um, they were just being who they were. And you know, unashamed, unapologetic, and the courage they had that particular day, I, I'd never seen before. I just always thought that they were just showgirls. They were more than showgirls. They, they showed out. The fact that trans people and drag queens were on the front lines of gay liberation back then, and now, over 50 years later, are facing systemic attacks on their existence, that's something that weighs heavily on Paul. For me, I'm saddened by um, all of this... Um, pushback and backlash, you know, and really trying to, you know, again, dehumanize our community, particularly the trans population. You know, we fought long and hard and they have to to get, um, um, to be recognized, to have some rights, and um, so they can live their lives. They're not out there trying to, uh, to hurt anybody. They're getting hurt, but they're not there to hurt anybody. They're really just trying to live their lives. And, you know, I think it's um, all of the gains that we've made over the years and over the decades since Stonewall to afford us the rights that we have we enjoy now systematically being stripped away um, across the country. And what impacts the trans community impacts our entire community. And um, I think that that's what saddens me, the fact that it's, it's rearing its head uh, all over again. And we have to fight just as hard as we did back then now in order to keep that from um, advancing. But Paul and Charles don't get too discouraged because they see a lot of hope in young people. The younger generation, I take my hat off to them. I still think a lot of this is from that older generation that refused to change. Um, when you talk about, look what's going on in Florida and stuff, most of those are the older generation. But um, the young generation, I see that there is a change because if you look uh, with the protests, there are more of the young people fighting, helping us fight for our rights than you find for the older, our age, or, you know, a little bit younger than we are. I think that's why we have so many different pronouns now because they are not, do not want to be in one little box. 
And with our society, you cannot put it in one little box. You cannot say who's right and who's wrong. We're all human. And if you don't like what I do, no one asks you to come to my house and look at my bedroom, what I'm doing. Uh, come to my clubs and stuff and see what we are doing. Stay, do what you want to do. But don't say, I can't do it. I do not go and tell you what to do. So why should you tell me what to do? A lot of this, this hatred is taught. They're not born this way. They're taught this here. And I look sometimes, you know, like when you go by the, um, come across the bridge and all these signs, these Trump signs and all this hate and stuff like this. This, it doesn't have to be. But you just, the young generation, they love you no matter what. Just like the kids, when they go to the, the reading of this, the, um, the books and stuff. They're just seeing someone entertaining them. They do not think about anyone's wanting to touch them or whatever. And these drag queens, they have the slightest idea. These little babies and stuff. So enough, enough. I asked Charles and Paul if they experienced discrimination in Falmouth, and fortunately, they said no. Everybody knows who um, that we're gay. You know, I made it very clear, you know, when we went shopping and we were, um, you know, uh, we were in a lot of um, establishments, you know, uh, preparing for our um, our wedding that we had here. Um, we had a huge garden wedding, so we were shopping all over the place. And all the establishments, you know, anytime, you know, say, oh, these are pretty, what is, um, what is this for? I said, oh, what is, um, I'm, uh, we're getting married. This is my, my, my fiancé. And, you know, folks were so supportive. And every time they heard it, it's like, oh, my God, that's so great. Where are you guys going to be? And all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, um, they, we've, Felt supported. At least I have. Same here. I've never had a problem. And you know, I, I my attitude is, you like it or not. You know, I'm too old now to care what you think. You know, like I said, in a few months I'll be 75. So hey, what you think about me, you can shove it. If you haven't noticed already, you can kind of hear in these clips how different Paul and Charles are. Paul is from the north. Charles is from the south. Paul is jolly and loves to chat with anyone and everyone he meets. And Charles is a bit more reserved. Paul loves retired life in Falmouth, and Charles does too, but he wishes there was more to do at night, more like in New York City. But despite all that, the two are in their 10th year of marriage. They even renewed their vows in France last year. Now, this part doesn't really have a lot to do with Stonewall, but if you, listener, are anything like me and love a good love story, you probably want to know how these two ended up together after all these years. How did you guys end up then, like, now together? <laughs> we've had um, a long history, you know. I, I tell folks, um, you know, we've had a fifty-plus um, year love story. You know, it started in nineteen sixty-eight when we met, and we have been, um, we it's been, we got together, you know, and have lived together on a couple of different occasions, and then split up again. But we, this is our third round after nine eleven. I moved here, and. Um, we uh, reconnected uh, since then to a mutual friend. And we realized that, you know what? We need to stop playing around and just make this for real. I was very opposed to um, the notion of marriage. I just was not going to get married at all. And he brought it up at one point when um, we were together for the second time. And he's like, don't ever think that that's going to happen. I'm not going to get married, so don't even think about it from me. <laughs> so... I was very opposed to it, very resistant, but I was the first one to propose to him when we we got back together. And I said, "Well, you know, it, it just amazed me that he um, there was still a spark there." And the minute I saw him 
after he got off the, the bus coming from New York, uh, I, I felt the spark too. And it was like, oh my God, this is still happening after all these years? Are you kidding me? And I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to do something about that. And I, I was, um, started on the quest to convince him that he needs to move, leave New York City and move here to the burbs with me. <laughs> that was 2012 when Charles and Paul got married. And somehow, by that point, they still did not know that they had both been at Stonewall. At what point did you realize that you were both there? <laughs> he sneaked in town. I just realized about three or four years ago he was there. Mm. He never told me. We were at a function, and they asked, they asked if there was anyone there from Stonewall to please stand. Paul stood up, and then I stood up, and then I looked at Paul. While you stand up, he said, well, I was there. All of these years, I never knew he was there. He snuck in town and didn't tell me. I, it was something that we didn't really talk about, you know. No. And um, I didn't know he was there until, you know, at the same time when we both stood up. And it's like, what? You were there? He said, but what were you doing there? <laughs> so it was a whole um, rekindling of um, our individual experiences. We knew one another, but we didn't know either of us were there. Listen, um, we, we would need to be interviewed for about a week if you wanted to hear the full story, okay? <laughs> this is just a snippet of our lives. Our program today was voiced, written, and produced by me, Gilda Geist. Thanks, of course, to Charles Evans and Paul Glass for sharing their stories, and another thanks to Henry St. Julian for introducing me to these gentlemen. The Upper Cape Catch by the Enterprise comes out every Friday, just like our newspaper. Pick up your copy at our office in Falmouth or at your favorite local business. Or check us out online at capenews.net. We also now have an app that is free to download on the App Store and Google Play. Thanks for listening and happy Pride. <laughs>